Welcome back to the future of figure skating. My guest today is Asher Hill, who is a choreographer, commentator, and one of the founders of the Figure Skating Diversity and Inclusion Alliance. With his partner, Karis Ralph, Asher was the 2008 Canadian National Junior Champion in Ice Dance and went to the 2010 World Championships. Asher is a vocal advocate for racial justice. In 2020, he called out Skate Canada for making an essentially empty statement in response to the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. The statement was hypocritical to Asher, who had filed an official misconduct complaint with Skate Canada more than a year before, highlighting a number of instances spanning five years where a co-worker at his figure skating club was abusive with racist, homophobic, and misogynistic language. Asher's comments sparked much of the progress that's been made around diversity and inclusion in Canadian skating. Asher's warm, smart, and funny, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Asher, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me, Anna. Really excited to be here. <laughs> I love podcasts, so um, to be any part of it is like always a freak out for me. It doesn't matter which podcast. I've only been on, this is only my second one, so I'm, I'm making it sound like I'm on many, but this is only my second, but I love them. Well, I heard you on the Burn It All Down podcast, and that was great. That was actually introduced me to that podcast, which I've gone back and listened to other episodes of, so that was very cool. Honestly, a phenomenal podcast. It's the only sports podcast I listen to because they tell the real real, they get the nitty gritty and you still get your sports news. But again, intersectional, it's, they're amazing. I love Shireen Ahmed. If you're listening, Shireen, I love you. So you were just at Canadians. How was that for you? What were some of your highlights? Canadians was good. It was very up and down in terms of like the skating, I would say. But honestly, I, I think sometimes at, at, at nationals, it can be kind of a a temperature on seeing what the future of skating is in Canada. And I, I will say I, I was felt very settled. I don't know why I'm always like sometimes worried like, oh, are there good Canadian skaters out there? Whatever good means. But I, I felt like what I was seeing was the, the caliber has definitely risen from like the first group all the way through into the last group. So it was really comforting to see. And I, I think one of my biggest highlights were the dance event and just seeing how tight that got. Uh, Marjorie Lejoie and Zach uh, Legat almost beating Nikolai Sorensen and um, Laurence Farnier-Boudry because of the fall. And they also got uh, an illegal element. So they're 0.6 points away from becoming national champions. And I've, I'm really excited to see how they grow. But also, Synchro. Synchro being there, they just bring a different energy. I would only see Synchro competitions from afar, like videos. And they're always doing their chants and their screaming and, and really getting their the energy going of their teams, you really feel that camaraderie. You have like 14 to 20 skaters on the ice, uh, you know, talking to uh, the Nexus team after on CBC. They uh, were just really happy to just be there and feel like they're part of the top caliber of Canadian athletes and to see their smiles and just that, get that recognition um, was really incredible. And some really cool programs, especially from the Champions Nexus and Senior and Junior. That's really great. Yeah, I went back and watched a couple of the synchro programs and I don't normally watch it that much because I'm not as in the loop with when the competitions are or just doesn't come across my radar as much, but it's nice to have that chance for people who are used to watching the other four disciplines also get to see synchro built right into nationals like that. And what's great about synchro too is it's often it's definitely the numbers but often it's the place where you see a lot of a lot more diversity in skating diversity of not only just skill but diversity of people and everything like that so it's always great to have the synchro skaters come in because you know you get to see like uh black and brown faces you see uh, <clears throat> asian skaters it's like it's really 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 cool uh because you know sometimes me in the back being like when you see the one black person like hey hi and then to see like eight of them pass by all part of a synchro team like hey it was pretty cool. And a couple of the skaters that you choreographed for were there as well, because um, you did programs for both Maddie and Leah, right? Yes, 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 yes. As well as the junior, they came second in junior pairs. Um, Ava and Yanni. I forget how to pronounce his last name. Sorry, Yanni. <laughs> I got to train very briefly with them and their coaches when I, my skating partner and I went to train with Tina in Winnipeg. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, it was, it was really cool. Yeah. And it was you guys did have a nice hangout there. So fun to watch that team who I knew were a, you know, great up and coming team, but then to see them like on the junior grand prix and making the junior grand prix final and like all of that was very cool. I was like, Oh, I know them. 
I tried to do a single sock out with Ava once. Like, you know, it was very exciting um, to see them doing so well. And and yeah, like, you know, <clears throat> in Canadian skating as well, like there's been a big gap in uh, in pairs. Like, you know, we had Dylan Moskovich and Megan Duhamel and Eric Radford, Vanessa James and Eric Radford, American Marinelle and Karen Motaros. There was a time where there was very consistent pairs. And I think that there was just a gap because a lot of, coaches didn't teach pairs at all either so you know and then you'd have to like move to a different club across the country to get pairs training things like that so I think they're really trying to make it uh, more accessible to get pairs and so like Yeva and Yanni they only had before I even came to choreograph for them they had already won novice pairs and they were only together for like five six months and they're both brand new to pairs so we had to like really work on just like what a basic hold is and get that thing done to to see them really improve and enter that space of, you know, that kind of empty field of, of pairs and being able to take advantage of that and of that opportunity for not only medals, but success, and then, you know, experience and really build up their confidence as they move up to the senior levels or and junior again for next year, I'm assuming. Yeah, it, it's great to see that. And it did seem like watching the junior pairs internationally this year, there there's certainly that big gap between a few top teams that are, you know, almost at a senior level and then a lot of teams that are in development. But then I had the fun experience of getting, like I said, mm -hmm. going to see how Ava and Yanni could train in Winnipeg and then that there's a growing pair program in Halifax in Nova Scotia and that Kirsten Towers is now coaching in Vancouver. And so seeing that outside of the sort of traditional Ontario, Quebec centers of pairs that more coaches are taking it on is, uh, I think that's uh, encouraging for the development of that discipline. I completely ignored the part where you asked about Leah and uh, Maddie. So sorry. That's okay. We, I'm excited <laughs> about talking about Ava and Yanni. Okay, perfect. Okay, good. good, good. <laughs> I did interview Maddie before nationals, which was really fun too. And I, I really enjoy her skating and I'm, I hope that she can continue to just like really settle into the character of her programs because when she's like on in storytelling mode and isn't worried about her jumps, she has such a great energy on the ice. Yeah, you know, having to work with Maddie these past, I guess this will be almost our fourth year together. It's been really fun. There are definitely some challenges sometimes. You have to figure out the way a, like a skater works. And like for Maddie, certain times, like arms aren't necessarily her strong suit, for example. It's not that she can't do like arms and things like that. But if you overload her with like arm movements and like a choreograph, like we have like maybe an hour. We're just trying to retouch a part. Too many arms in that section will like her brain will start to like implode. So we have to take it like little small section by section, work it, work it, work it, work it, work it. So it stays like consistent. So she's doing all of the things or else she'll be like, I'm just going to forget them. So there's definitely things like that. And, you know, in, in skating, you're just like, sometimes you don't have a long time. She's so like, okay, arm, that's it. Good. Moving on. And then we'll come back and the arm's gone. So I'm just like... Wow. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes you're like, okay, where is it? Where's that? You need to do it. It's a highlight. There's also points there. But she really is a special person. Uh, you spoke to her. She has such an interesting personality. She has an old soul. Iconically, she said, like, I'm 18. I, I live off of dreams and coffee. That's kind of her vibe. Like, I just show, like half the battle showing up and here I am. Kind of what more do you want from me? Not She'll still work, but like, it, it's just like half the battle is just like, I'm here kind of thing. That's kind of her mentality. I'm here and now I can do it. It's really been fun to work with her. And, and I know she really wanted to do Black Swan, even though the, the process of like choosing the program, it's always like, she's choose whatever you want. I don't kind of care. Uh, and then you give her the piece. She's like, I don't like that. <laughs> then she's like, okay, what about this one? I don't like that. So I'm like, so you do care? She's like, no, I don't. <laughs> As she gave with me to Black Swan for the short program, I was a little bit eye rolly because um, yeah, even on our show, that figure skating show, me and Dylan talked about pieces that we don't want to do anymore or see anymore. And Swan Lake was one of them, but uh, we still did it. And, uh, you know, it's been a good program for her this year and a year that's kind of been hot and cold for her. The short's been very consistent. And you can see she really embodies a character from the way she's like, again, that engaging stare down of, of everybody and embodying that. We didn't want to go for like the ballet that you're a ballerina interpreting a bird. You're just starting off as an evil bird, like immediately, like you're already there. You're like evil incarnate and you're just warping the story of that, um, which I think 
really helps her delve into the character. Having been chased away from a pond by a swan once, I like swans are nasty. <laughs> evil, like. evil ganders. Well, it sounds like it's a good thing too that you're um, able to keep working with her throughout the season and keep reinforcing and building on like those pieces, those arms, and those pieces of the choreography. <laughs> We we call it uh, whenever there's uh, an arm taken out uh, or something like that. We call it the Maddie rebrand, and uh, you know it's it's hard doing what they do. Um, you know sometimes if you make a mistake at competition, you gotta think on your feet to you know adapt and change and things like that. So it's it's understandable, but uh, often we always want them to stay the same kind of thing. But it's it's honestly a joy to work with her. We often end up getting derailed with political conversation or things about toxic masculinity or the, the state of figure skating right now um, in Canada and the world and things like that. What does sport actually mean? Like we'll get so far, it's been 10 minutes. I'm like, hey, we got to stop. Hold on. <laughs> you're, pay you're paying for this. This is not a chat. Let's get going. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So speaking of politics, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of the activism and work that you've been doing in that space. In 2020, you called out Skate Canada for making essentially an empty statement in response to the murder of George Floyd. And in that moment, everyone felt like they had to say something about the Black Lives Matter movement. And I feel like it takes a lot of bravery to publicly confront hypocrisy in an institution like that. And it definitely had an impact on how people were seeing that moment. So I'm curious, because I've talked to Caitlin Weaver and Tina Chen on the podcast earlier a little bit about the equity, diversity, and inclusion work that's been happening at Skate Canada. I'm interested in how you see the progress that has or hasn't been made in Canada since 2020. When all of that kind of happened, it was really difficult because although I'm outspoken when it comes to my own personal things, I'm a little bit I'm more quiet and I always really want to fix the things I can fix within myself internally and things like that. I don't know, a little bit of a skating mentality, fix what you can control, like you're controllable. So when I was dealing with all this stuff and it had actually started in 2019, my official complaint, uh, and then the results of that complaint were pretty much set up in 2020. And then they made, you know, everywhere else from men's health to the Badashu Museum was like, rah, rah, Black people, we don't want to. And I, I remember sitting in my bed and my grandma had just died. And so I was not in a great place. And then they had put, put this up, like one of their Black squares. And I just, I lost it. Fast forward to now, um, you know, I know Tina is heavily uh, involved in the EDIA committee on Skate Canada. They've been you know, to Skate Canada's credit, they've actually really taken on everything that Tina has given to them. There was a lot of resistance at the beginning, uh, as I know, um, uh, in conversation with her. But now they seem to really be adapting and, you know, looking at their four-year plan that they set out this year. It was really encouraging to see the kind of language they were using and giving Tina and this organization, like, full control of what's being written out and how to go about it. So, that's been very heartening. And, you know, my experience is the thing that started all of this. And so I, I know when she was showing it to me at a restaurant a few weeks ago, I was crying. <laughs> but it's a little bit too tear for me because while I see this aspect changing, my case with Skate Canada is still ongoing. And I have to deal with the legalese I have to deal with. At one hand, I will see we are now changing the term for partner to mean just a team. So it doesn't encapsulate any kind of gender. Or we are striving to have leaders of color in Skate Canada and starting a program for that and, and knowing how many people signed up and how many like like eights of tens of people had signed up for this. And so that's that's really big to hear and, and see that like uh, there are indigenous people who are the head of programming for CanSkate. Like those things are very encouraging, but, but I have to be on the other end where progress is happening, but at the same time, I'm being almost, without getting into talking about the legal matters and proceedings, I don't get that full side. I don't get the accountability the remorse, the allegations that I made are very, very serious, um, not only to do with myself and experiencing racism, but abuse of, of children and other coaches and officials. It's not fixed. It can happen again, especially at that club, Skate Canada, Brampton, Chincuzzi, where I left, like those issues could still be there. And going to Canadians is, is hard. Going to Skate Canada is hard. I have to 
see the officials, the people who like signed the communications that were given back to me, I have to go back and engage with them and 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 speak to them in passing as I, you know, as I liaison with their athletes to get the stuff for CBC. So it's often a mental torture hell for me to go to these spaces and me to even be in figure skating still in a place that I love, but has also really harmed me. And, and you know, something that I'm thinking about is like, I've I've given so much of myself to this sport and, you know, at the end, like Skate Canada as well with the medals and results that I've gotten and, and you know, to have my story and the story of others and my sister, Acacia Hill, also experienced, if not worse. And actually, no, she explains she experienced worse. She's a Black woman. We know that they experienced the symptoms of racism and misogyny much differently than anybody else in, in the world. And that was true with the stuff that was happening at SCBC and Skate Canada. And so that affected her and that's still ongoing. And so I, while I'm so happy to see the changes, I know that behind the scenes, some of the things aren't actually curling over into that space. And I know it's complicated. I know it's going to take time. And I've really let myself just be like, the lawyers will deal with this. I now have to move on and try and find my happiness and joy back in the sport again while well, this is ongoing but it's still something that I'm happy and then uh, about the things that happened to me personally started this wave of change but I can't let uh, the things that happened to me personally affect like the changes that are happening if you know what I mean um, although I know that the things that happened to me are systemic and I can change it from that perspective all too often, the person who raises the issue or whose example like starts something off is not the person who gets to benefit as much from the changes that it causes. And I hope that that's I hope that's not the case for you, but and that it eventually does work out. But it, with these institutional processes, sometimes it's easy to start with the like big picture, change the rhetoric stuff, and then actually having it be impactful at the personal level is challenging you keeping that level of accountability is so important. Something I think about because being based in the U.S., I'm constantly saying, well, look, Skate Canada can do this. The U.S. could do this too. And sort of pointing to Skate Canada as the example of who's doing so many things well, because on a lot of fronts around inclusion, it is probably the federation that's the furthest along and being the furthest along is still not where it needs to be. So trying to keep both of those things in mind simultaneously. 100%. And like I said at the beginning, like it's super cool that I was sitting in media room and I was overhearing some other reporters talking about, you know, the changes to Skate Canada and the term partner being used or, or just team, not putting a gender on on the lifted or whatever person. Like that's, it's huge. That's so big. And, you know, hearing their older people and one of them was like i'm an ally but i think this is just so crazy this is not going to curl over to the isu what the hell is that like this is like oh these people uh, they name somebody i won't say the name they're radicals they're radicals and they're just like it's just skating you know when i grew up thornhill at, at uh, scarborough figure skating club all of the female coaches did the dance with the little girls and there are same partner things at fun competition where you could skate with your best friend and you guys are all just laughing it's not that big a deal and if it doesn't fold over to the isu who gives a fuck we're talking about the people in our country and our community of figure skating that want to see and feel included into the things and to create language that allow people to feel included, especially when they're the people who are at the edges of society who are actively being harmed by policies, by rhetoric, by violence. It's fine. It's not going to be any meat off yourself to be like, you know what? I'm going to be very observant of the pronouns I use. Because guess what? You use pronouns every day already. That's called grammar. So it's not that big of a deal. It's not that radical. Just take a step back, take a deep breath, and it's fine. <laughs> like, and if it, and again, we literally, one thing that we always talk about for our country is that like, well, we're so opening to people like gay uh, refugees come to this country for, for freedom and to feel like themselves. And then you want to, want to bring them over here and be like, okay, but no pronoun use you non-binary person from Turkey. Like it doesn't make sense. Right. So it's really cool. I think it's amazing what they're, what, what's happening right now. And, it, and it's really cool. And of course it's, it's work, work doesn't end.
And it gives such a leg up to people who are looking at this in, you know, in other countries to believe that change is possible and to push because, yeah. you know, yeah. being a non-binary skater in the U.S. and someone who's in a team where we are currently not allowed to compete at any level. But, you know, we didn't start doing this because we wanted to, like, be a test case. We started doing this because we had each always thought it would be really fun to try pairs. I'm looking forward to a time when Erica and I are not the people getting cited in the TSN article about an example of a team because there are senior level, elite level um, pairs and dance teams that are you can point to because I think there will be and there'll be great examples for how from a technical level as well you can be successful. I'm sorry that you're not able to just skate. This is what people often forget when there's this exclusion of people based on language or the perception of gender. You're now iced out of just something you want to do for fun and something that, you know, competition is it's part of sport and it, it can be toxic or it could just be the fun part of sport. You want to see where you measure up. You want to have fun and you want to see other skaters. You want to learn from each other and to not be able to meet and come together with uh, your other contemporaries is, is hindering and isolating. And that's not right. And that's why I'm really happy of the work that Skate Canada is doing. And, and we know that people are going to be resistant to it. But at the end of the day, it's not about what those people say. And it's so funny that the difference between, you know, you talk to anybody, you know, I think about people in that I talk to in my life outside of skating who are like, wait, that's a rule. You're not allowed to have same gender couples. You have, ha wait, it has to be a man and woman. And like, really? That's the rule? Like, they can't believe it. It sounds so strange and outdated, but you talk to people in skating and it's like, well, of course that's what it is. We couldn't imagine anything different. And so I think so much of it is just this failure of imagination that, when people actually yeah. see yeah. it, they're going to realize that it's not um, anywhere near as, I mean, in some ways, you could you, it could be not anywhere near as radical as they're imagining. On the other hand, I kind of hope that there are some, you know, radical elements of it in that we do kind of disrupt some of the ideas of the types of programs and the types of stories that we tell with partners and, you know, all of that too. Because you could have a, a couple that was, you know, any two people and they could tell a very traditional story and do very, a very traditional skating program. And maybe that will be the first step to show that that's possible. But hopefully it also opens up for, you know, for everyone a little more flexibility and gender presentation, all of the rest of it. All of our conceptions of like, what are these limits on gender, especially within sport, when you just sit with them and talk them out, you're just like, oh, that is kind of dumb. That is ridiculous. I keep saying I'm not going to make every podcast be about um, gender and pairs, even though it's the thing that I'm thinking about. But, um, so I want to ask you about the FSDIA, the Figure Skating Diversity and Inclusion Alliance, and if you could tell a little bit about how that came into being and what some of the projects that you've worked on are and how that's going. Yeah, so the uh, Figure Skating Diversity and Inclusion Alliance, uh, FSDIA, was started by Elaj Balde and Michelle Hong, and then I guess I was also like a founding member with Maie Berenice Maite, a multi-French national champion Olympian, Vanessa James, um, again, same French champion Olympian, Mariah Gerber, and a bunch of other BIPOC and ally skaters. And it was born in that same time of me calling out Skate Canada, people learning my story, especially Elage. We reconnected after that. And he started to go fund me for my sister's skating school, BHSA. We had only opened up in the fall of 2019 and then pandemic happened and trying to open up. And, and so it was just kind of a coming together in a space for skaters of color to know that you're not alone. And, you know, even me getting back on there, you're just like, oh, shit, there's so many of us. Like there's black skaters in in South Africa, in Austria, in Switzerland, in Germany, in Canada, in America. And here they all were on the screen meeting and talking. We started uh, the chairs, different memberships of chairs. I was advocacy chair. It was a lot of energy and everyone came in. You know, it was that time that people really wanted to make a difference. And so some programming that we were able to get off uh, very quickly, you know, we had uh, community meetings where we had talks with uh, like people like Tina Chen, Dr. Lauren Couture, 
uh, Courtney Doe, uh, Roheen Ward, and, and just creating teach-ins, motivational talks, just also like uh, yoga, just giving access to, you know, especially younger Black skaters and different skaters of color access to things that they may not get, you know, because often when you're the only Asian skater at the rink, it can be very, very tough or the you're only black skater at your rink in this small town in, in America or Canada. Um, and, you know, that just created a sense of of connectiveness and as well as just visual representation. Um, you know, there's a little girl who was recorded and she's like, I didn't know that there could be black coaches. So, you know, just even to be able to do that, not change the mindset, but allow that kid to like see themselves not only as like another skater, but that at the top, you could be someone instructing this and you can receive it differently. We have a lot of things also planned, program called Big Skater, Little Skater. But in the last year, um, you know, when everything got opened back up, you know, everyone went back to work, everyone went back to competitive, back to their, their skating and all this stuff. And so there was kind of a lull and, you know, we start, we tried to start Big Skater, Little Skater and it didn't happen. And so we've had a lot of changes. Uh, Elage stepped down as president, same with Mariah Gerber. And so we've had a complete rebrand. And so behind the scenes, we're really working on another FSDA coming out for 2023 we hope to get our programming started again i think big skater little skater will we're going to take our time with it i think we just got really excited and wanted to do everything because especially we got a seminar like started within like three months and there were so many kids from around the world who participated in it we're like oh we got this and then you know uh real life happened so we want to be able to still be impactful and, and know that we're still there representing and we're doing this for the kids and so we're going to start we want to start back with our community meetings. Um, also, oh my God, conversations in color. I spoke to your partner, Erica Rand. We touched on things on intersectionality of like, you know, being a black skater, being a queer woman in skating, being a black woman in skating. I think in the summer, we're going to touch more on those um, because they're really fun uh, and eye-opening long form interviews that give humanity and context to what a skater goes through on and off the ice, what it takes for them to get to the rink, seeing them as a full person and the full range of what takes them to be a skater, a coach, an official. So that's been really cool. And I'm really excited the meetings we've been having uh, at end of last year and into the new year um, and us getting back into it and back into the work and uh, helping skaters. That's so exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing all of the new stuff coming out. I've really learned a lot from the conversations in color and those go so much more in depth than most of the conversations that, you know, are publicly available on these topics. I will link, I have in the past, I linked to the one on um, Asian skaters uh, in an earlier episode, but I will definitely link to those again because I think those are such a great resource. That was one of my favorites, actually, just because, again, like looking outside of myself and, you know, the concept of racial wedge issues and different things like that, just to see, you know, especially in terms of figure skating, often the fetishization of the Asian body, I would see it at my rink, you know, coaches would be like, go for the Asian skaters because they're rich and their bodies are good and their parents are aggressive. You're just like, okay, that's, uh. <laughs> and then, you know, we're talking to Michelle Hong, who is, uh, Hmong, a ethnic group from Cambodia and her family surviving the Cambodian genocide. And then, you know, knowing that like Southeast Asian and Pacific Islander Hmong people are often, we think about constantly Asian excellence and things like that, but how often Southeast Asian people are absolutely left behind and out of the conversation and what, you know, the countries they've immigrated have done to their countries and what it's taken for them to get here. And it's not... They're not all monoliths, but how often they're treated exactly the same in the sport is... No, it's like you go below the surface of any of these sort of identity categories. You start realizing how many different types of experiences and then every individual's experience is going to be a little bit different too. But just there's always more to learn and why it's, I think, it's so important that we're not just hearing like the tokenizing that happens of one person being asked to speak for a whole category of skaters or people in the world. You talked you know, a little bit about this with some of the work that you've done, but what do you think is needed to make skating be a more welcoming place for Black skaters in particular and people who have you know, been marginalized from the sport in general? You have all been in this work for so much longer than me. 
Tina, Dr. Rand, Laura Couture, like everyone's been in this work for so much longer. And so I know that as a, a younger person in this work coming up, like, okay, yes, education is important. And especially as new people are born and come into the world, they have to also be educated on this new stuff. It just happens again and again and again, kind of thing like that. That, you know, the people who have been here also, they haven't had the chance to be educated on these things. They need that as well. So education is very important. But sometimes, even for me, I'm like, hey, what are we, we've been learning so many times. How many books are we going to read? How many things are we going to know? Uh, uh, there's only so much education. And the people who are still waiting for you to be educated are still being harmed while you're trying to get your BA. And is this racist if I say that? So I think education is absolutely part of it because you can't just take action without anyone understanding why the action is happening. Like, for example, Ski Canada, they changed the turns Choctaw and Mohawk, which are traditionally indigenous tribes, to C-step and S-step, which makes sense because it makes a C and one makes an S and you change feet. So you're stepping. So very simple. It actually makes more sense, especially when you're teaching little kids. C, S. They're learning that in school. Easy for them. But I found that there wasn't a lot of information given to why that's happening. No one knew why are we changing this? Um so there was no information on, oh, yeah, you know, when indigenous people were were brought to England, they were made to perform in their regalia, forced to perform in their regalia, and they were noticing their foot positions. And they're like, oh, it's kind of the things we do on when we figure skate, because uh, Britain is, I guess, the, the birthplace of figure skating, fancy skating. And that's where we get the terms C-step or, or Mohawk and Choctaw, and, you know. When you reduce an entire group of people to a step in figure skating, that's reductive, harmful, all those things. But at the rinks, you'll still hear Mohawk, Choctaw, just a big resistance to it. So I see that, yes, action is part of it, but the education is also there. But I also think that the action, the actions have to happen. And like I think Tina's doing it in a great way where the starting like very top down. But I think it needs to translate to like clubs and training environments because honestly, I'm still seeing and hearing the same things. I think there's more awareness now. But again, whenever there's a push forward, there's always a push back. So the push forward always has to be continuous so that the changes still maintain. And I think just acknowledging that people come from different walks of life and that you're not only a skating coach. These are also lessons that your skaters will be able to take out of the ring. It's that interplay between like the education that you do so that you can take action and then the education that you have to be doing and like explaining and context setting that you have to be doing like while you're taking action and then like learning can't be the reason that you stop doing like you can't just pause until you and wait until you have like the right answer so much of building change is trying things and seeing if they work exactly I think you also touched on something that's really important and just in terms of like yes we can change these policies big picture but how is that showing up like actually every day in the rink Erica and I have tried to be better with each other in using C-step and S-step. And it takes practice to make any kind of language shift where something that you, you know, do all the time. I'm someone who uses they, them pronouns and is constantly trying to decide whether to correct people on it. Like that's something I think about a lot. And then I notice, you know, with myself, it's like so much of it is just, you know, having someone else you can practice with and having that, like, I won't feel so awkward because I'm the only person using this. And people might look at me like, what is this? But we can start with each other and then that normalizes it for the conversations that we're having with our coaches. And then I think it can go on from there. And Erica also teaches basic skills. And so then that is something that, you know, she has a space to do it there. And so it's actually something I was thinking about this week is just as well as this like macro conversation, like also what are the ways that I show up at my own home rink. Yeah, I, I guess that would be, the answer would just be like, it, I think the education has to be put into practice, like almost in tandem, just because we're at this point now, things move very fast. And I know, but the slowest to move is often social change, um, because it's so interpersonal to people. And it challenges not only the status quo of your sport, your country, your cultural identities necessarily, and so that's always the biggest resistance uh, I find. But I think it just has to be education and practice have to be put in tandem more readily because, you know, like 
trans people, Asian people, black people, our problems have been like studied to death while we are also dying and suffering. So we don't need any more studies. We need like the action, but while also understanding why the action is happening. And and I, I think that is quite readily available on why the action is happening. I know that you got to be gentle, but also at the same time, fuck gentleness a little bit. Well, and that's the thing. It's like, I think once people realize that it's like, this isn't an abstract, there are actual people that are harmed by this. And maybe you haven't noticed that, but that's about you and your perspective and not seeing the people who aren't there as much as that is like, you know, any other reason. I also wanted to ask about how this plays out for you in your commentary CBC role, because I really enjoy that figure skating show. You always have great outfits and funny things to say, as well as good commentary on what's been going on. How did you get into doing that? And sort of how do you think about who is your audience in that show? Are you talking to like casual skating fans? Yeah, so I guess I got started. It was PJ Kwong. She is a well-known uh, broadcaster. She doesn't, you, you would hear her voices at the Olympics actually. She's fantastic. She also is as a coach. Her mother, Marion Spence, was really good friends with my mom, who's really active in the skating community. So they had known each other for a really long time. And I got an email one day. It's like, hey, do you want to come try out? They want people to do commentary for the Grand Prix final. This was like 2018, I think, 2019 or something like that. Yeah, 2018. I didn't answer because <laughs> I'm terrible at emails. Uh, and then eventually got a phone call. And then she's like, hi, so you're doing this thing. It's me, PJ, by the way. Uh, you're doing this thing. You're coming in for this audition. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I feel comfortable doing that. I don't really know. She's like, no, you're doing it. So I came in. I did my little, it wasn't even an interview. It was like, here's a program. We're going to watch it together with Brenda Irving. And you're just going to comment. Say thanks. Uh, very nervous. I spoke great, I guess. I said my stupid things that people say are funny, but my mom calls annoying. And then they gave me the job. I was able to do the the actual Grand Prix final and then got pulled into a room with Dylan later, a few months later. And like, hey, we're have this idea for a show. And then that's kind of how the show started getting, got rolling. And it started up very we didn't know what to do. <laughs> so we were like, okay, let's wear costumes in Vegas. Let's wear Elvis wigs and things like that. And so it was a mixture of making fun of the sport and having fun with it because it can be so serious, as well as giving the context and, and the seriousness that it deserves because it is a sport that people put their whole lives behind and fans are very dedicated to it. And so we like to balance that mix. So I think what I'm talking where we obviously know that excuse a little older, but there are a lot of young fans coming into the sport because they do love personalities. Uh, skaters are bigger on TikTok and things like that. So I really am trying to talk to younger people as well as the kind of older generation that really likes more information. And then as well as just trying to be authentically myself, because, you know, I can think of who I want to talk to, but I know how I see skating and how I want to be able to talk about it. And coming from more of a an identity that's not seen in skating very much uh, as a black man, and as well as always kind of being more of like a, a social justice, true seeker. So, so that kind of definitely plays an angle into what I'm able to talk about. And now that, you know, Dylan's gone, my producer's changed. So everything's changed now and I'm getting told that like it's your show what do you want to do with it so I think uh, if, if it continues for next year um, we're gonna have a lot of new stuff that I kind of really want to try but to be honest I've been really enjoying it um, my producer Jackie Dory who left was really amazing impatient with me and Dylan she never made us feel like idiots even though we had no idea what we we're doing it was all learning process and we we're able to like just put whatever we kind of wanted out there and then if there was something too much she would say no and then she put us back so it was it was really cool to be able to create this YouTube series and I think that helped us be able to be more ridiculous because we're not on TV or on YouTube and they don't care about us much as much here so it was really cool to be part of that yeah well, it's great. But also the fact that it's on YouTube means that it's something that's much more, you know, it's accessible outside of Canada, which, you know, I appreciate because in general, I was thinking about this. I wanted to go back and see if I could find any of your performances from Battle of the Blades. And it's like really hard to find any of that because that's all very like was in Canada. And if you don't have a VPN, oh, like, yeah. and all of that stuff. And so I was like, oh, this is actually nice because with having it be something that's like straight to YouTube like that means that it is accessible outside of Canada. And 
and you while you always you know mention the Canadian skaters, I think you do a nice job of talking about everyone for their strengths. Because you know we've been there before as athletes who are very close to it, me and Dylan. So we were able to speak, especially to that like rawness of like dissatisfaction or or you know scandals and different things and how that might make a skater feel. So that was really cool. I think people really enjoyed that as well. And I noticed one of the most recent things that you did with talking about Camila Valieva's Wednesday program, you put some context in around that, that it's not just, oh, that's cute. This is a skater doing a viral thing, but like, this is who this skater is. And the fact that this is going viral right now, when there's still the ongoing doping case and there's still the war and there's still the, like all of this stuff and skaters haven't gotten in their medals. that was very cool that you were able to put quite a bit of context into a, you know, a very short segment like that. But with that one, you know, that was my first Olympics to cover with with Dylan. And it was when that happened, it felt it could have been the lack of sleep as well, because we were, were in Canada trying to do uh, Beijing hours. But it just felt I felt like the blood drained from my body. I felt like my hands were cold. It was almost like I was about to step on the ice. like, And that's when I'm a little nervous. It just felt like. What are we doing? A 15-year-old should not be caught for doping. This is an indictment on skating. This is an indictment on coaching. This is an indictment on how far we want to win these medals that do mean something for the athlete because of all the things they put in. But, you know, it's also being used politically, which is always so weird that athletes aren't supposed to be political. But so many people fail to recognize it that this was still ongoing while she's doing her dancing moves. And it was nice to see her go viral for something that wasn't doping, because at the end of the day, she is now a 16-year-old. She's a teenager. And I can't imagine what you're going through psychologically. Like when I was 16, like my mom was like, hey, do you want a tea? And I would just go crazy. I can't even imagine what this young girl must be going through right now. I think that this girl does deserve happiness. But at the end of the day, doping is doping. And if if you're not old enough to make your own decisions, you shouldn't be necessarily at those Olympic events. You know, things are continuing. But then also the fact that Rusada investigating them themselves and her said that she's not at fault. And I can almost buy that because at the end of the day, she's not the one making her decisions to take these doping drugs. What is going to happen with Tuburitze, Dudikov, Glykenhaus? Like, these are things that actually have to happen. Where's the accountability? Uh, we have to restore the faith in this. And then, you know, talking to Kirsten, she was there at those Olympic Games and Canada was in four. So they could potentially be getting a medal. But more importantly, it's America and Japan who are right behind. So that thing needs to be acknowledged. You cannot. And we know this when we're reading these the news stories or whatever, they're always forgetting a major context. And I find this in Canadian media. We'll, we will piggyback off of your awfulness in America all the time. We'll be like another mass shooting. Meanwhile, we literally had a mass, the biggest mass shooting in Canada ever, but we'll only talk about the American context. So there's no full context of this. Like, great. We all love Wednesday. It was such a great show. We love an angsty, a bad bitch, like who's just getting that shit done. But like, that's why I started with like, she was a truth seeker. She was the whole season. She was like, what actually happened? What's happening in the school? So great. She did the dance. Uh, also, it wasn't original choreography. It was a dance that was stolen from a, a movie. But where is that part? And, and, you know, a lot of athletes were really upset just seeing that, too. So it was disrespectful for them. So I really wanted to come on there and be like, hey, don't disrespect the people. You were just like, hey, let's all villainize this girl and, and Russia and all these people. But then when as soon as she does something cute, you're like, wow, cute. <laughs> like, it just doesn't. I appreciated during the Olympics so many of the you know the skaters who were there or who were you know retired skaters were commentators were t- making that distinction between villainizing the skater but talking about the system and that's that's so hard to do with a story like that and just the way we talk about doping in general is very like moralizing on the person who's caught but if you look at anything about the russian system it's state sponsored it's it's not so much about the individual choices but it also i think if we look at that story it also asks a lot of questions about you know responsibility toward coaches in general and that those are questions that go beyond just looking at Russia. That's one of the things that's been a little disturbing. I think even seeing this season is that realizing, okay, the Russian skaters are banned and there aren't the events happening in Russia, but skaters who train in Russia with Russian coaches are still competing. And those coaches are still going to other competitions internationally. How much personal responsibility do you have for the situation that you're in? And we don't have a good answer for how to handle that. 
Because what has to be regulated are the actions of the adults in the room, because all athletics skew young, especially the Olympic ones. So like these are people that, you know, put their whole, their idea of what they are as a skater and how to get there. They put all of that into their coaches. And if a coach is like, hey, take this pill or you're not going to be great. I want to please my coach. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be great. You're telling me that? Of course I'm going to do it. And then there's so many other factors, but that 100% needs to happen. Like you can't be like, oh, doping violation, but this young person is not held liable. Then who is? It must be the coaches and the apparatus around them. So what's going to happen with them? We shouldn't have to see them at an event when they've, there's a serious allegations of not only the doping violation, but credible ones of abuse. One of the other things that I really liked episodes of that skating show that um, Tina pointed me to actually was the episode that you did looking at Papadakis and Cesarone's whacking rhythm dance. That's something that I think is a, a nice example of how it can be done well to take on something that has its own culture that's coming from marginalized communities and bringing it into skating, but doing that in a way that's respectful, which is often we, you know, we see that not being done in a way that's respectful. And so I'm curious, but as a choreographer, how you think about that sort of stuff around ethical choreography, cultural appropriation, what skaters should or shouldn't skate to, or the process that they should use. And then also how that plays out for you when then you're looking at programs out in the world and seeing that in commentary and whether to, you know, whether to address that, I suppose. Yeah. So I'm going to start this really weirdly because this is where my brain went. So last year was street dance, which is already kind of a, a pause for what does that mean? Street dance or whatever. But in actual dance, I think they call it more free dance where you just do a, a type of dance style kind of thing. They call it free dance. Uh, but we already have something called the free dance, I guess. So, but, so we had street dance, which is supposed to be more geared to hip hop or like something that isn't traditional dance, I guess. I don't know what that means, but you know, hip hop dance. What was like one of the biggest moves that everyone was appropriating from uh, hip hop or black culture or whatever was like twerking. And how come in any of these programs all over the world, over nationals, not one time did I see anybody shake their ass. Not one time did I see an actual twerk. So I'm like, what is the actual dance happening here? So when we went to uh, Papadakis and Cizeron and they did the whacking program, and we're all like, this is amazing. Who like who choreographed this? And and I know in whacking as like uh, in passing as like, okay, it's a, it's a queer dance kind of thing. It's more like part of voguing, even though it's kind of its own thing. So I'm like, okay, a little bit of a pause because like I like this too, but let's and then finding out it's choreographed by Alex Monazero, who's a Burundian whacking dancer who who's based in Montreal, and talking to her and just being like, I wanted them to know what where this came from, how it's born from struggle and and why we do this and, and who bore this. And, and not saying that you have to identify with that, that identity of people who created it as like, you know, Gabriella isn't a, a queer man or a queer person, as far as I know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure to put it on, on her, but Guillaume is a gay man. And so you as, as a cis woman, you can still find struggle and put that into the movement as telling your own story without taking and stealing. You can understand the power of the movement, where it came from, and then now honor that by telling your own story on top of it, but acknowledging where it came from. And to see them take their time and understanding and how to do that is really prevalent in the program. Really real and not put on, you know what I mean? And then you would see some other programs, um, and this is not to keep dumping on Itiri, but it just pops into my mind. Her daughter, Diana Davis, and, and her partner, they did the hip-hop thing. And it was, to be honest, pretty cringy. It was like, I feel like I'm watching a Protestant from like 1755 just like interpret this. And it's just like, yuck. And then, you know, we had the Snake Charmer program by Chalk and Bates, which I, I really loved. It was like a, a, a nice kind of breakout for them. But again, it's Orientalism. You have a man charming a snake kind of thing. I think when we move towards creating new programs, you have to have this sense of idea that like, okay, I'm not going to put this Bollywood program on this white skater unless they've, you know, actually gone and done the dancing. But also it should just be a point of like, maybe not, maybe let's not, let's not do this. Let's stay away and just, no, there's so many pieces of music that we can do. Staying away from that as much as possible. And if you are going to endeavor into taking a dance style that's 
different from yours and you don't know anything about, really educate yourself. Find somebody who's of the culture who can do it because then you're also supporting not only art, but then you're supporting most likely a BIPOC artist. You're putting their work out there. And because at the end of the day, dance is for everyone. Dance is a form of expression. Dance can make you feel good. Dance can make you feel sad or like you can emote that. You can transmute your energy into something and and to find a, a type of dance style that really suits you and works for you and makes you feel is really important. But honoring where that comes from and not trying to, you know, benefit from it without acknowledging the people it came from and also giving some of that benefit to those people, uh, then it's, it's kind of empty and it goes back to the problem that we're trying to solve. Yeah. Talking about education, you know, the work that would theoretically or should be going into some of these things, trying to imagine like, how should we be handling rhythm dances where part of the whole idea of the rotating patterns and the, well, not patterns anymore, but the, you know, the rotating rhythms and different music styles is that they're trying to push it beyond the very Western classical ballroom places that it started. And that can be a good thing. But if you're like, okay, just everyone needs to go off and do Latin now without any context that can produce all kinds of not so great things. And I can see the problem with it. But then I start thinking, well, what should be going on and how much of this does come from the ISU or educating judges or that kind of thing, as well as the work that coaches and choreographers and skaters do to try to address this or even start raising it. Because I think for a lot of people, it just is not part of their mental landscape that they're even questioning it. And like, you know, we've had horrendous programs like like skaters from those lists isn't horrendous, but when you come out in a striped uniform, that is. Or the Russians at the 2010 Olympic year where they dress dressed like the most racist caricature of an Aboriginal like, tribe. I, I think they were supposed to be like indigenous people of Australia or Oceania or something like that. I don't know. It looked just crazy. It's just absolutely crazy. So we're trying to avoid that. <laughs> you know, it's not only insulting, you're going to get embarrassed too, you know. It's embarrassing for the sport. That's go that those are the kinds of things that go viral in bad ways. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so there's nobody in the room there. And still ICU allowed them to compete it all the way to the fucking Olympic Games. <laughs> um, there was no, there is a deduction button. This is the thing that can also help. You have a deduction button. And I'm, I almost got a deduction. I'm going to tell you how I got this. And it was uh, high key racist. Um, we did an African OD. And even when I was doing the African OD, a rhythm dance, short dance, whatever it was back then, when I first, we were going to do it and Carol had suggested it to me, I was like, I don't want to do African OD. The music that we're going to use are from a musical called Umoja, which means the spirit of togetherness. Um, and it's from South Africa. My dad helped bring it to Toronto and it was playing at like the Mervis Theater. It was really cool. I got to hang out and backstage with these cool um, South African dancers and singers. It was still some of my the most beautiful music I've ever listened to. And so I was like immersed in it. But when I came back to the rink and they're like, well, we should skate to this. Like, how about you? You're a black skater. You can absolutely do this. Immediately, I felt like, OK, I'm being further othered. I don't want to do that. Also, you know, as a figure skater, you don't often see African dance movement on the ice. And so it's like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to. But then, you know, finally to realization, I'm like, OK, well, this is something that at least I know that I can do uh, as a, a person who's black. And, you know, it may not be exactly like my culture. So when we did it, it was so well received. People were going crazy because they had never seen it before. Like Victor Kratz came up to me. It was just like, honestly, it's like it's the second time we did African OD. He's like, you're the joy, the reason why dance exists. Like you just have it. I almost fell on the floor when he said that to me. But it was something so cool. And and one year on the Grand Prix circuit, Junior Grand Prix, we were at in Zagreb and the outfit that I wore was mesh all over my body that was dyed to match because it was supposed to give the effect of nudity but there were jewels like attached to it so it looked like those little bracelets and things and then a vest because it matched my skin too well i almost got a one-point deduction which would have been a costume violation because it looks nude and lewd we were told about it because they always have a, a judge's round table after an event to discuss that what marks came out and then we get like feedback from our canadian representative judges or whatever 
So they told me that, oh, you almost got a negative. You almost got a minus thing. She's like, oh, okay. That's something that we'll, we'll recognize. And then at that same event, in the free dance, I think it was a team from Azerbaijan skated like an Egyptian program. Again, cultural appropriation. But he was dressed like a pharaoh, and he also had nude mesh. Didn't have a vest at all either, with like jewels, similar things all around. After the round table, we, uh, my coach asked the judge, like, so was there any discussion about this white boy, like, you know, getting a costume violation? They're like, oh, no. Yeah, so just like, oh. Okay. Uh, Interesting. Uh, and so on the podium. This isn't even was, subtle. There's just a comparison <laughs> right there. Right there. Right there. And so on the podium, I made sure not to wear a shirt at all. Just bare chested. I gave that example because there's a button to be pushed when something is not appropriate or deemed lewd or you look naked and we don't like it. <laughs> and there is also that same button for like, if there's a swear word in the program, blah, 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 blah. So there can absolutely be a button that'd be like, this is culturally insensitive or this is like inappropriate due to, is this like racist? Is this too much? Like, like those are, those are things that you can absolutely do. And then I think just a visual push towards like stopping the cultural appropriation and skating because it's it's easy, low hanging fruit to grab that you want to be. OK, let's be a little bit different today. Let's throw a dart at the global map. And that's the program that you're going to do this year, you know. So I think we can absolutely push ourselves towards being more sensitive to that. Um, and especially the top teams, you want to do programs that really diversify yourself and push you outside the bounds. But you now have. Well, most of the time, I shouldn't say all people because it depends on what country you train on and your finances, but you have the access and your coaches and federation and things like that. There's more of a push to actually get choreographers who do off-ice dance for Bollywood, African dance, all these different things. So yeah, I think it's within our wheelhouse. Those are the teams that yeah, we should absolutely be holding to that higher standard because they're the ones who should be having the resources and all of that feedback. And like, I mean, like you said, like if they're getting bad mark for a program can change the program and that's happened. And so this is the feedback mechanism that we have. The other thing that I was going to ask you about ice dance in particular was just what you think about the pattern dance being removed. I think just the pattern dance, especially at the senior level, I, I think is a bit moot. Like at this point, like you should be able to do the Argentine tango with like a good solid three turn back outside push, you know, all senior teams can do a three turn. So I often think that like when we're watching them do these, like the key points are literally put placement for the C-step or timing on that swing. And like, yeah, that's important, but all these teams can do it. So sometimes it, it would be like, crap, I got a level one on my Ravensburg. Then you stop and think like, what did I not get a level on? Oh, like my C-step. And it's just like, but I'm an internationally raised, international medalist. And you're telling me I can't do a C-step? So I don't know that that's behind their reasoning, but I think to me it adds more intrigue. And then, you know, all of a sudden everyone was doing the same thing. Like there was like a different program, different, different, different. And then we're all doing the same kind of element. I don't think you need to do that. I know we don't have jumps in our program, which like gives everyone has the same jump and you can clearly identify that was that was clean. That was like the, the quality. Um, but yeah, I, I think it adds more time for actual choreography because doing like even half of a dance will take up at least 30 to 40 seconds of a program. And in that program, you still have to do lifts, twizzle, spins, blah, 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 blah. So it just adds more variety and intrigue because a pattern dance can just all of a sudden be like ooh, sexy sexy still let's do a progressive swing roll it like breaks it and i think they i don't know i think they might be putting it back next year hopefully not because i've been enjoying it without the pattern dance so we'll yeah see. i've heard rumors of some sort of like not quite a pattern dance but sort of a pattern like something in between and i don't yeah so some of the dances like for example the fin step was a dance adapted from the finnish team it was adapted from their like old like back in the they're called OSPs or something like that. So it was adapted from that. And so and so what they're trying to do as well is adapt other senior teams from like more of this generation for the fast five, 10 years and adapt it into a new pattern dance. So for example, I think Piper and Paul's, they did um, that Sergeant Pepper program where they wore like the pink and blue. So that program was very interesting and they made their own partial step sequence and that's an element. And so what they're trying to do is adapt a partial step sequence into a dance. So that's kind of what they've been doing for the new pattern dance. So it's a little bit interesting. 
But at the same time, everyone's going to be doing it. So it's a little bit more. And as someone who is not an ice dancer and is relatively new to trying to have any opinions about ice dance other than vibes and that's nice. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Ice dance is 100% vibes. Oh my God. It's been really interesting to learn a little bit. But at the same time, when I watch for the the scoring on some of these elements and patterns. And I like the idea that there's something that's more objective theoretically, and it can have such a huge impact on the score over such a tiny, tiny difference between whether something is, you know, counted as a key point or not, or something gets a level or not, that it also, sometimes the objective things end up feeling like they're just as subjective as everything else. I still have not gotten over the audience at Skate America booing the scores for um, Dice K and Kana um, for their dance. Oh, honestly, I will say this. Uh, when an audience boos for you, not against you, like boos with you against the judge, it feels pretty good. We've had it happen a few times to me and Cares. Yeah, there was a Skate Canada after we did the Can Can program, and then was like, oh, wow, that was amazing, standing ovation. Marks came up, we were last, they're like, boo! And then it's also happened to us at our first and only Worlds uh, after our free dance, the same thing. And so it feels it feels good. Like sometimes you, because obviously you've got to play the game sometimes and talk to the judges and, you know, kiss their ass, even though I forget all judges' faces. So I, that's not, it's never worked for me. But sometimes you just want to be like, die. <laughs> I hate you. That was such a good double axel. It was, why did I only get a plus one? And so when someone blues with you, you're like, yeah, I agree. <laughs> it's a little skater revenge kind of. Oh, man. Thank you so much, Asher. This has been really fun. That's great. That was great. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Asher Hill. You can look at the show notes for links to a transcript and links to many of the things we discussed. You can reach me with comments or suggestions for topics and people I should talk to by email at fsfuturepodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at futurefspodcast. Remember to subscribe to the Future of Figure Skating on whatever platform you use and share it with your friends.